to the Very Well Mind podcast. We've interviewed over 100 authors, experts, entrepreneurs, athletes, musicians, and others to help you learn strategies to care for your mental health. This episode is hosted by psychotherapist and best-selling author Amy Morin. Now let's get into the episode. My guest today is Houston Kraft. Houston is the co-founder of Character Strong, a company that provides trainings that create more compassionate cultures in schools and in communities. He's a really popular speaker who has reached over a half a million people at his speaking engagements. In fact, that's how I met Houston. In 2019, we spoke at the same event and I watched Houston deliver a presentation that resonated with the entire audience and me as well. He asked everyone to participate in an exercise that involved pairing up with a stranger and talking about some of our fears and insecurities. Even though I'm a therapist, I have to admit that this sort of thing is still really uncomfortable. But it was a yes theory event where the motto was seek discomfort. So I went for it. And it turned out to be a really powerful exercise. Houston's also the author of a book, which is called Deep Kindness. It's a great read that might just change the way that you think about kindness. As a mental strength trainer, I know how important kindness is to our overall well-being. There's tons of research that links kindness to happiness. And of course, it doesn't just help us on an individual level, but kind people also make the world a better place. It's hard to be kind, though. We're busy, we're tired, and sometimes we feel sort of taken advantage of when we're nice to people. So Houston and I will talk about that, and we'll also talk about how to take small steps toward incorporating more kindness into your life, how to be more compassionate, and why saying be kind can actually be kind of unhealthy. Make sure to stick around until the end of the episode for the therapist take. This is the part of the show where I'll break down Houston's strategies and explain how to apply them to your own life. So here's Houston Kraft. He's mentally strong. This is his story. Houston Kraft, welcome to the Mentally Strong People podcast. Thank you. I wish I was on a a boat for this podcast as well, but I'll take my bedroom. Someday when uh, coronavirus is is over and the pandemic is no longer a thing, that's my dream is to be able to have our guests actually show up in person and we could do them from the floating floating, uh, podcast studio here on the sailboat. (laughs) Yeah, podcasts at sea are a niche, untapped niche, you know? I think so. I think so. So I love your book, Deep Kindness. I have it right here. It's a wonderful read. I hope that everybody on the planet reads it because I think kindness is something that we could all use more of. I know for me, it's something I aspire to do, but uh, saying I'm going to be a kinder person and actually doing it, there's always a disconnect when it comes to those two things. Uh, But before we dive into your book, uh, let's take a second to talk about the way that we crossed paths. Uh, I guess Mm -hmm. just over a year ago at the Yes Theory event, uh, I was a speaker earlier in the day. You were the last speaker of the day, and it's on this rooftop awesome venue. And somehow you managed to capture everybody's attention and then keep it with the things you were talking about. And you're talking about kindness. And everybody was just so enthralled with your message and the story that stuck with me. I was glad to see it was in your book, but the story of Helga. I don't remember all the stories I heard that day, all the people I met, but that story sticks with me. And although I don't fly a lot right now because of the pandemic, whenever I am in an airport, I always think of that story. 
Can you take a second and share that story for our listeners? Yeah. Uh, yeah, such a fun uh, memory travel vehicle to go back to that rooftop. Um, and the the story of Helga, which I... Oh, at this point, I think about or talk about Helga almost every day in some capacity. <clears throat> and it's funny, I don't even know Helga's last name. We were just airplane friends. Um, I imagine you know the type, uh, someone that has traveled before. You sit down. This particular day, I was sitting in the middle seat on the airplane, which means you are ripe material for people on either side of you to begin a conversation, even if you don't want one. And sure enough, uh, Helga strikes up on with me. This is nearly a decade ago now. Um, Amy, I remember I was flying to a school um, to speak there. And this woman just starts leaning into a conversation, even though it was quite obvious I didn't want to have one. My headphones were in. And she starts digging in at some point, asked me what I did. Um, I told her I worked in schools. Apparently, she'd worked in a school before. And she asked what I talked about in schools. I, I said it was kindness. And she got very serious uh, and sort of sad. And she told me the story about how the, the last time she was on an airplane was because she was on her way to go visit her dad, who um, the doctor had told her was sick. And basically, the, the soonest she could get from Seattle, where she lived, to Arizona, where he lived, the better. And uh, she sits down on the airplane to go and see him. And uh, right as they're about to take off, she finds out that he's passed away. So she now she's sitting with strangers for three hours uh, after getting, as she would say, the worst news of her life. And she goes, I think I'm in shock. I don't know what to say. I don't know what to do. I'm not even ready to cry. Until finally, she goes, we land in Arizona. I, got, I get off the plane and I walk up to the nearest wall and I just fall down. You know, when your body stops working right, your emotions have just like overtaken everything. And she goes, I sat in the airport and I, I wept for two hours. And the part I'll never forget is she goes, I sat in that, that airport for two hours crying uh, harder than I've ever cried in my life. And she goes, if I had to guess, probably 3,000 people around me, right? Going to their planes or getting off their planes. She goes, Houston, two hours, 3,000 people, and not one, not a single person stopped. And I think about that, that's like that powerful but simple moment, two hours, 3,000 people, not one person stopped. And I got a lot of questions. <laughs> the first one's to myself as someone that uh, literally has made a career out of talking about kindness. My first question is, would I stop? And my frustrating answer, like, probably at this point, I think I've gotten better. It's like eight times out of 10, my answer is no. Used to be probably 10 times out of 10. But I would say most of the time, I would give myself the whole array of human excuses. You know, I'm in a hurry. This is going to be awkward. She doesn't need my help. There's nothing I could offer. All of the things that I might give myself in that moment just to keep on walking. And I think the more interesting question for me at a cultural level as someone that thinks about kindness a lot is, if you were to ask any of the 3,000 people in the airport that day, do you believe in kindness? My guess is all 3,000 would say yes. And so there's that gap, right? That gap between what we say is important and what we actually do for each other. Because I would suggest Helga in that airport is the potentially one of the most meaningful, direct opportunities for kindness that we could experience in community with each other. Even if I don't know this person, someone who's actively suffering, this is a prime opportunity for kindness. And yet 3,000 people will walk by. And so the question that I've, um, you know, for a long time, I, I just tried to talk about kindness. And I thought the more earnestly I talked about the power of kindness, the more likely people would practice it. And after, uh, after few, probably six years and speaking to 500 schools, I was like, maybe I'm approaching it wrong. Maybe the more interesting thing to talk about is what gets in the way. Not just the value of it. I think everyone agrees it's important. 
but I don't know if everyone uh, has the tools, the questions, or the courage to ask themselves the question, what gets in my way? What prevents me from being the most kind version of myself? I think that's so powerful, the whole story. And then to ask ourselves that question, would I have stopped? I'm a therapist, right? Sometimes when I see people, if they're struggling, you know, I'd like to say, yeah, I help them. But on the other hand, I think sometimes I use that as an excuse, like, oh, I don't want to open that can of worms or I don't want to step in because what if, you know, once people find out I'm a therapist, then a lot of times they then want a free therapy session. I find this happens on airplanes a lot. You sit next to somebody, they say, what do you do for work? <laughs> I say, if I say I'm a therapist, I got three hours as <laughs> 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 uh, somebody trying to get free therapy. But what is it that gets in the way? What makes us in general? I mean, like you said, if I'm in an airport, my excuse is probably I don't have time. I have to get to the next flight or I have to get home. Uh, But even if I did have time, there's a ton of excuses I could probably come up with not to be uh, a kind person in that moment. What do you find are some of the biggest barriers to kindness? Yeah. And not to disqualify any of the very legitimate reasons, right? There's probably Mm -hmm. a thousand great reasons why you have to cruise by Helga in that moment. Uh, But I think it is a good example, a good sort of like framework to move outwards from, which is like, what could get in my way from stopping to help someone like Helga? And really the book, the book is like divided into those sections for myself, like, like sort of categorical barriers to compassion that I experience. The first one is incompetence. Do I, act, do I even know how to do it? Do I have the right tools in my toolbox to approach this moment? Because if I don't know how to do a thing, a lot of times I'll avoid it, consciously or unconsciously, right? I think the gym is a good example for me because most of the machines in the gym, I have no idea how they operate. I live close to Gold's Gym, like literally the mecca of bodybuilding. And there are people in there that know how to use these machines and they look like they know how to use these machines. <laughs> When I'm walking around, I'm like, I've used the pull-up bar before. Like, I can do the bench press thing. Sometimes the leg press seems pretty simple. But even that right. one, I'm like, am I doing this right? Mm-hmm. And I find myself drawn to the things that I know how to use. I think kindness is similar, right? I think because we are taught from a young age, uh, we're given a lot of really specific examples of what kindness is from a very young age. I think that makes it uh, that much more likely that those are the things that we lean towards or that we already know how to do. Like we know like buying the coffee for the person in line behind us. We know mm-hmm. like helping the person across the street, putting the grocery cart away, uh, you know, writing a thank you note. Like those things are the things that we sort of are culturally offered as the tools of kindness. It, it is probably less frequent that we get taught deeply about empathy, for example. I find, you know, for a long time, my career was motivational speaking. And I found that I spent a lot of time trying to be really positive. And because of that, I sometimes have a harder time accessing the more challenging parts of myself. A lot of times empathy requires that. It requires me to go into sometimes even my own very personal hurt in order to identify and sit with someone in theirs. Not necessarily solving their problem, but being to be like be willing to be present with them in their hurt requires me to like access my own. And I'm not very competent at that or I wasn't for a long time and still have a lot of work to do, but I'm getting better. But in the, you know, for so many of us, that moment with Helga, we're like, I'm not ready for this. I don't know how to do this. And so we walk on by because there's other machines that we more easily know how to use. That's a great analogy because I think it's so true. And I love the examples in your book when you talk about how sometimes our assumptions about kindness aren't necessarily accurate. Like you give the example of sort of the classic example of the kid sitting alone in the cafeteria. 
and we think, oh, I should go sit next to that that kid because that's the kind thing to do. But we're making the assumption that the other kid wants to sit next to us. And then we might not do it the second day. We're just doing it for that one that one day as if we're then improving their life. And we think, well, you know, is this really helpful? Is it not? But we do sort of the classic things that we think are supposed to be kind. And then when we have those moments, like when you walk by a stranger who's upset, we're more likely to just keep on walking. Yeah. Well, I think that's a part of the the mess that we're in in a lot of ways is that language is important and the, and and words carry weight. And the way we think about words in our brain, I think we sometimes take for granted the, the power of language. Right? Language is how we orient ourselves in the world. And kindness, you say that word, and you and I are probably thinking about different things. Why? Well, because every word has like the dictionary definition. It has sort of the cultural definition, what the world sort of shows us and offers us. And then we have like our lived experience definition, like the things that we listen to or learn about or the personal experiences that we have that shape how we think about that thing. And that's true for anything. But I think kindness is, is an interesting one because it's one of those quote unquote values that most people on the planet that I've ever talked to are like, yeah, this is important. But we really don't have a good shared understanding of what it actually is. In fact, you look at where we start to learn about it at home, certainly, but like schools. I've spoken at 600 schools, and I would say that 98% of them have kindness as a part of their mission statement or their values or their motto. And then I walk the halls and I see posters like, just be kind or throw kindness around like confetti. And I think sometimes, you know, collectively as adults who are trying to help students learn, I think those are well-intentioned statements, but I think they're actually really damaging. The narrative that kindness is as simple or as easy as throwing confetti in the air oversimplifies something that is actually quite complicated. And in doing so, like I, I think we oftentimes tell or, or try to convince not only young people, but each other, like, why isn't the world a more kind place? Like, kindness is free. And I would say that the narrative that kindness is free is one of the most damaging narratives I think we literally have in the world. Because if we operate from that assumption, then we think about this complicated thing as easy. And when we think about things as free, just as like human nature, like we don't always assign uh, value or importance to that thing, even though we might say we do. Then you think about something else like mental health or getting a college degree or becoming a professional athlete. When we talk about a lot of these things, we often associate them with like a lot of thoughtful work. In order to improve my mental health, you know, maybe I'm going to therapy and I'm making a commitment to do that on a weekly basis. I want to get a college degree requires a lot of work in high school to get to this place. And then there's a lot of work when you get there to study and show up and be present and pass the exams and hit the benchmarks in order to get the grades, in order to get the degree, professional athlete. I'm practicing every single day for hours at a time, disciplined, intentional practice. And then you're like, kindness is confetti. You're like, wait a second. What if we change the narrative of kindness for young people and for all of us, that kindness actually costs something? That kindness requires dedicated, consistent practice, like any other skill in our life. That kindness usually is going to cost me comfort if I'm doing it in a way that actually impacts someone's life. Uh, that kindness is oftentimes going to be inconvenient, right? I'm not always going to have time for it. And oftentimes in the moments of biggest consequence, I'll have to make time for it or make sacrifices in other areas in order to give it. But because we don't paint that narrative, we have this other paradigm in our brain that shapes the way we act with it. And then we grow up into adults and everyone's like, yeah, kindness is important. And then 3,000 people walk by Helga in the airport. So there's a gap. I love that your book is called Deep Kindness because you go into that, those sorts of things in your book about how we use it as sort of a surface level thing about, yeah, be kind, write the thank you note. 
and that we don't actually put into practice. And I love the idea of being able to say, what do I have to give up in order to be a kind person? And I shared this with you before, but one of the things I talk about in my parenting book is about if the parents went to a parent-teacher conference to know, would you rather that the teacher said your kid was the smartest kid in the class or the kindest kid in the class? And so many parents said, oh, no, I definitely want my kid to be the kindest kid. And then when they asked the kids the same question, would your parents be prouder if you were the smartest kid or the kindest kid? Like 99% of the kids are like, no, my parents want me to be the smartest kid in the class. And it's because you think, well, how often do we talk about their grades? How often do we talk about how much are you studying? How often do we discuss how they're doing academically compared to how often do we ask them about how kind they are or what they're doing? And I think deep kindness is about saying, yeah, if we're really going to put this into practice, you have to be conscious of it on a, on a daily basis and to be aware of how you're affecting people around you. And one of the other things I really appreciated about your book was your honesty about the times when you weren't necessarily kind. And the story that particularly struck me as well was you were honest about your divorce and what happened to your marriage, even though you were out teaching other people about kindness you weren't necessarily practicing it at home in the way that you should have been. Hmm. Yeah. To go back to the, that category of uh, incompetence <laughs> as a barrier for kindness, one of the skills I talk about, one of the competencies I think is an essential ingredient to the practice of kindness is forgiveness. Uh, and, uh, and the story of, of my marriage and my relationship and ultimately you know, our divorce is a story of a lot of forgivenesses. And, uh, you know, the, the, the short version, but obviously much longer story involves me going to a lot of schools talking about compassion, kindness, connection, and love. And this really interesting thing, this unexpected thing that happened to me in the process of speaking about this positivity was I was telling a lot of very similar stories to brand new audiences almost every day, which meant that I had to get really good at being a of having a strong first impression, right? I show up, I'm like, I'm the speaker here today. I'm going to be talking about kindness. Like you better believe they have an expectation that I'm going to be this like kind person, or at least my perceived idea of kindness at that time, which meant that I always had to be high energy. I always had to be positive. I always had to be motivating. I always had to be uplifting everyone around me. And I got so good at that first impression because sometimes I was literally doing it multiple times a day in different schools and then traveling, waking up in a new time zone and doing it again. That the book, the way I talk about it is like, I became a first impression. When I got home, I didn't know how to access other parts of myself because with such repetition and with like a lot of dedication, I was like trying to be this thing. And uh, it was hard. It removed a lot of depth um, for myself, which uh, naturally has implications for the person you're in partnership with. Uh, there was a lot of challenging times where my partner was like, I, you know, is there anything beyond this and uh and i would get upset because you know the, the one of the dangers of of like doing work like that where so many other people are showing you generosity in the response to what you're offering right you're out there doing a good thing and you become if you're not really thoughtful you start to become self-justified and like it's okay that i'm spending all this time doing this thing because it's a good thing for the world and oftentimes you're making sacrifices in a lot of other departments in your life made some sacrifices with my friendships, my family, with my own personal health, and certainly with the person that I was spending the most time with. Um, and that reaches a breaking point. Um, you know, I, I, I lost uh, 
ultimately I, I lost my marriage because I lost her heart because I lost my way. Um, and the far side of that story is, is one of forgiveness of one saying hey, the best way that I know how to, that we know how to love each other is actually to separate, uh, that we both have so much work to do elsewhere. Um, and that's been true. It's been three years and, uh, the, our, our lives are both, uh, more rich and better for uh, this time that we've taken. And we still get to be friends. I was just texting her yesterday. Um, and so I think sometimes we forget and the chapter goes into a lot more, but you know, the conversation that's at the heart of it is our capacity to forgive as an exercise in kindness, to see past all the things that are happening externally, right? The behaviors that we all make externally because of internal hurt and uh, the practice of forgiveness, the kind practice of forgiveness is separating people from their behaviors. We do bad yes. things sometimes, we're not bad people. And if we can see that and hold it with love, and, and generosity, then sometimes the most kind thing we can do is, is offer forgiveness, whether it's for ourselves or other people. I was so glad that you talked about that because it's really popular saying, like when people show you who they are, believe them, right? So if somebody messes up, then you're supposed to believe, well, that's a bad person or that person's toxic. They shouldn't be in my life and kind of turn your back on us. It's sort of popular. You see all these memes, these things on social media about you know, if somebody tells you, shows you what they do in life, they make a mistake, well, then they're showing their true colors. Mm. You make it clear that we can forgive people, that when somebody messes up to just say, like you say, the hurt that might be underneath that and to say, that's okay, you're a human being. I'm a human being. I mess up. When you mess up, I'll forgive you. Can you just talk for a minute about that, about a little bit about how you forgive people or how do you know? I mean, obviously there's times we need to set healthy boundaries when somebody is uh, really not a good person um, in so many ways, or their relationship with us is is causing us some destructive things, we may need to set some lines and say, okay, I'm not going to have this person in my life. But on the other hand, how do you know how long to forgive somebody or when to forgive? Hmm. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's also all the sayings about how forgiveness uh, is the prison and you're the prisoner. There's that forgiveness is giving someone else uh, or like, it's like offering someone else poison and then taking it yourself. I forget to say, you know, the point It's yeah, that yep. we oftentimes are the ones who suffer most from holding on to these things. And, uh, you know, in terms of a, a very practical exercise, um, I think one thing that, uh, that I, I, I try to do in moments of frustration, I had one of these recently where the goal is to take the person and the, the behavior they're doing. And instead of thinking about the behavior, thinking about the emotion, but it's just a reframe of how you're thinking about the person at the moment because we can get really riled up and like, ah, oh, this person did this thing to me. And what if instead it was, this person is feeling this thing towards me? Where does that come from? Right? And if we can get curious about those feelings, it's oftentimes, um, we, we have a really hard time identifying behaviors that we see as negative things in others. We have a hard time uh, recognizing that we're oftentimes equal perpetrators of very similar behaviors. And so it's, it's a, a more challenging and more healthy exercise because I think sometimes we can identify with people's feelings of why they're doing a thing uh, more readily than the things that they're doing themselves. So it's like, I know what it feels like to be frustrated or hurt or feel unseen or feel disconnected or feel dismissed. Like I know that feeling and I know that I do some things as a result of that. But if I can see that this person is feeling dismissed instead of doing X, Y, or Z to hurt me, that's a pathway towards forgiveness because it alleviates uh, making it personal. The more we can make it impersonal and recognize the hurt beneath the action, 
um, the more we can make our way towards forgiveness. And I hold that statement alongside what you just said, which is we can also love people from a distance. We can be kind to people from a distance. Forgiveness doesn't always mean that we're inviting them back into our lives or we're inviting those behaviors back into our world. We can say, I love you. I forgive you as a person. And you're never allowed to treat me this way again. Right? Sometimes we think of those things as mutually exclusive. And the reality is that those can operate simultaneously. I forgive you. I love you. I'm kind to you, whatever that statement is. And you're not allowed to call me at this place or time. You're not allowed to be in my home. We don't even have to talk again, but I forgive you. I'm glad you said that because I think a lot of people think that, okay, if I'm going to be kind to this person, then I'll have 